for our study this evening. Acts chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we all come from different walks of life, different experiences, uh, different joys and challenges today, but we do have this in common, that we love you, that you're our Lord, you're our Savior, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, we don't want this just to be our Wednesday night tradition, that bring the kids to Iwana and junior high and high school kids to youth group, and we come here in the sanctuary. But God, we want you to know that we're hungry for you. And we desire that you would do your work, your will, your kingdom would come in our hearts and our lives, that you would awaken us. We just invite your presence. As we read these words, your word, we know it doesn't return void. May you speak to our hearts, bring encouragement, bring challenge, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in the book of Acts, what we've seen is Jesus ascended to the Father, instructed the disciples to wait. Difficult to do that they would wait when they've got a mission, but God says you need to wait until you've received the promise of the Father, which was the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, God poured out his Spirit upon the church as they're praying, one accord seeking God's heart. They began to speak in tongues. People thought they had gone out of their mind, that they were drunk already so early in the morning. Peter saw that this was a stage set up by God to proclaim the gospel. By the time that he's done speaking, 3,000 people get saved. And as we ended last week, we saw the simplicity, but yet the beauty of the church. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in fellowship, breaking of bread, spending time with believers, enjoying time together. As we go into chapter three, we now begin to see the church spread. The church begin to pour out into the community. The purpose for the filling of the Holy Spirit is not just for our edification, but also so that the love of God could be dispersed. This is a radical chapter. By the time that we're done, we're gonna see 5,000 more people come into the kingdom of God. Join me in verse one. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. First, they're together, Peter and John. Jesus sent the disciples, the apostles, out in two. These men have been through a lot. They're close friends. They're journeying together. There's something to be said for this. Fellowship with all, but close friendship with a few. You do life with those people. You pray together. You walk together. This was these men's tradition to stop and pray at the ninth hour, which is about three in the afternoon. From all indications, Peter and John are extremely busy. They're busy men. There's a lot going on. It's a crazy, chaotic time, but yet they have the lifestyle of prayer. God is going to meet them in an unexpected way as they do something that's very ordinary to them. Going to stop and pray. Something that they would do every day, but yet God has another plan. If you haven't adopted the lifestyle of prayer, you're missing out. You may need to set little reminders, post-it notes, make it the beginning of your day, the end of the day, stopping in the middle of the day, but make it a part of your life. No matter how busy you are, you might say, well, I'm too busy to pray. We're really too busy not to pray, amen? So these guys are praying together. They're going to the temple at three in the afternoon. Notice what happens, verse two. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried. When they... 
lay daily, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who have entered the temple. This man was born lame, never walked, never ran, never jumped, never played soccer, never played basketball. Now that's a heartbreak. (laughs) He's now in his adulthood, has to be carried to the gate of the temple, this gate beautiful. No wheelchairs, no crutches, none of the things that we have today. Some friends, some family seems daily would bring him to this gate. He has no other option but to beg. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, writes of the beauty of this gate, the grandeur of this gate, and you almost have this parallel of different worlds taking place. People coming to the temple, walking, going about their lives and their business. And for this guy, from a lot of people's perspective, he doesn't have a life. He's going nowhere. Things are the same. He doesn't realize it, but his life is going to change this day as he's at this gate. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked for alms. This is something that he has said countless times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, thousands upon thousands. Hey, do you have any money? Sir, if you've got some spare change, I could sure use it for dinner. And he asks and, and he begs in this way. Notice what happens to Peter and John in verse 4. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Peter's cruising through his day on a mission to go to prayer, probably has something planned after prayer, sees this man sitting asking for money. Peter's probably got his rote response that he always says, not today, sorry, no thanks, don't have anything. Maybe he wouldn't say anything at all and just keep walking. I think we all have got our rote response that we would say in this particular situation. But there's something different this time. Peter looks into his eyes. This man gets his attention. This is the moving of the Holy Spirit. As Peter is filled with the power of God, he's now walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and he's sensing God work in the midst of a moment. There's most likely... Many times that Peter has passed by this man before. He may have even been begging at the gate during Christ's ministry. Jesus, no doubt, had gone through this gate. But God was doing something this time, this day, this moment, in this person's life. You may be in your neighborhood, your apartment complex. You see your neighbor like you see them all the time. And God says, today something's different. And your eyes are drawn to them. Your heart begins to beat and God puts something on your heart for you to do. Some way that you're to approach them. Some question that you're, you're to ask. And this is the key really to the church becoming vibrant. And what I mean by that is fruitful and effective and getting outside of our own four walls is when we say, God, what's your plan today? What's your will? Your will be done. Your kingdom come. God, what's your heart tonight in this service? What are you doing in the lives of the people around me? We go home tonight and instead of just doing what we always do, we're saying, God, I'm open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't say, go to every crippled person in Jerusalem. Go to every sick person around the temple and ask the Lord to do a miracle. This was a specific mission for this guy at this time. Think of what a disaster this would be if Peter just started going up to every sick person 
every lame person, every blind person, and saying, be healed in the name of Jesus. Be healed in the name of Jesus. And what if God's not moving in that way? Peter's a buffoon, right? God's name is blasphemed, but this is what God was doing in this situation, and he was open to the leading and the moving of the Holy Spirit. Does God have permission in our lives to lead us? To ask us to do things that are beyond our understanding, that don't make logical sense. His attention was fixed upon this one person. If you've never had this experience, I pray that you do. As you're going through your life and you're going through your day where all of a sudden this person has your attention, God has put it upon your heart to go and speak to them. Verse five, so he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. He's seeing dollar signs. They're asking for my attention because they're about ready to slap a $20 bill on me. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. And I wonder at this point if the beggar just got dejected it's like, on to the next guy, you know? What can he give me if he doesn't have any money? Now, there would be times that we would think that God's ministry is limited by our resources, right? There's a need that's presented, and we go, I don't have the money to fix this. I don't have the money to help in this situation. I don't have the time. I don't have the strength. And yet, Peter understands this. He understands that he doesn't have money, but that doesn't mean that God's work is limited. God's ministry is never limited to our resources. Now we know that up here, right? God's work is never limited to our resources, but it's absolutely true. So if you don't have the money, that doesn't mean that God can't work in that situation. You don't have the answers, it doesn't mean God can't work in that situation. Don't have the strength, that doesn't mean God can't work in that situation. In fact, God does his greatest work when we don't have any resources to contribute to the equation. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. There's a spiritual truth here that we can't give away something that we don't possess. Peter is giving away his relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ is real in his life. Christ is leading him. And because he has that contagious, obedient relationship with Christ, he has the confidence to be able to know what God's doing in this situation. He says, I don't have gold and I don't have silver, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I wonder sometimes if the church today has silver and gold, but they don't have Jesus. They have money to throw out a situation. They have physical resources to throw out a situation but they don't have Jesus to throw at a situation. And that's what we need more than anything else is Christ and to hear his voice and to know what he's doing in the lives of people when we interact with them. God's doing something. Right now, right where you're sitting, God's doing something. And to connect with what God's heart is for you. When you're at the grocery store, God's doing something in the people's lives around you. When you're sitting at the dinner table, God's there and he's wanting to do something with those that are eating and gathering the family and spending that, that time together and saying, Lord, I want to connect with your heart for people. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. This is classic Peter moment, isn't it? He knows that something's happened because he's heard God's voice. 
The lame man doesn't know that anything's happened yet. So Peter just picks him up, says, you're healed, buddy, come on, <laughs> you know? And in the moment that he picks him up, God does the miracle, and it says immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Remember, Luke's a physician. He's the author of the book of Acts, the human author. And in the Greek, these are very detailed words. Immediately his feet and ankle bones this is actually referring to the very back of the foot and how it's all connected here. So somewhere he was born and where this was deficient, where he could never walk and he could never stand. His problem was in his feet and his ankle. These are the only time these Greek words are used in the New Testament. It speaks medical language of the miracle that God did in this moment. Again, don't go try this on everybody. Don't read Acts chapter 3 and go to the next person that you see in a wheelchair and say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. You better make sure that the Spirit of God's leading in that way. And Peter knew that, and he was able to step out in this way. In verse 8, so he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. He's never had this experience before. He's never walked anywhere in his life. Can you imagine him being a three, four-year-old boy and watching the other boys in his neighborhood in the street running and, and playing? And I'm sure at some point some neighborhood boy said, hey, we'll push you out in the street and you can watch. Just devastating for, for a little boy. He didn't have to learn to walk here. There was no one that was saying, okay, this is going to be a gradual process. He didn't have to see a physical therapist. It was instant healing. I'm sure these muscles and his leg had never been there before or it weren't working properly. And in that moment, God gave him everything that he needed. I wonder what his vertical was when he was leaping. You know, how, how high exactly was, was he leaping? And he stood and he walked and notice what he did is he enters now into the temple. He's been at the gate, but now he's in the temple and he's praising God. He knows that this is the work of God in his life. It wasn't Peter, it was Jesus. And may we never mistake that. God can use people as his tool, as his instrument, but it's not them, it's God. And we need to praise God, worship God, thank God for his work. And this man very rightly so praises the Lord. In what ways has God healed you? In what ways has God risen you up and touched your heart and brought you forgiveness and redemption and deliverance? And in those things, in those victories that God's brought in our lives, we praise the Lord. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. This is not the normal day at the temple. This gets everybody's attention. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The reason that God touches our lives, brings freedom in our lives, is for wonder and amazement of himself. Where people can go, oh yeah, I know you. You were the one that was given over to anger. And there's something different about your, your countenance. Yeah, yeah, I know you. I've seen you there before, and you're where? You're, you're at church? Rocky Mountain what? Rocky Mountain Calvary? Is that like horses? Is that like a horse riding group? Or, or no, it's a, you're at church on a, on a Wednesday, Wednesday night? Yeah. Oh, what's happened? God's done something in your life. Oh, you're the one who was always running around and were unfaithful. 
always committing adultery, but yet you've made things right with your wife. You're committed to your wife. There's, there's a purity about you. You know, I don't remember a time hanging out with you where you weren't drunk. Now you're not drunk. This is amazing. You're even a lot more fun when you're sober. And all of a sudden, there's this wonder and amazement that comes over because God has done something in your life and it brings attention to Jesus Christ. It makes people curious about Christ. This miracle got people's attention. Verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's Greatly Amazed. So they come to Solomon's porch and they're blown away. They're greatly amazed. And bless this lame man. He's just holding on to Peter and John for dear life. And in the Greek, it's the same word that's used when you are arrested by the police. <laughs> He's saying, I'm chained to these guys. I'm, th- I'm thankful for how God used these men in my life. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so attently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? This is a point of great danger in Peter and John's ministry. If they would have maybe started to sell holy hankies, where if you bought them for an exorbitant amount of money, then you too could be healed. Or here's the magic anointing oil of Peter and John. And then if you paid $100 for the anointing oil, you too could, could be healed. Or if they said, you know, I kind of understand why God healed this man. I mean, we were on our way to prayer. And who goes to prayer at three in the afternoon? And it's really our dedication. And let me write a book, How to Pray Like You Mean It. And if you pray like you mean it, then you too can see people be healed. Step back from Peter and John at that moment, right? We're going to read a little later in the book of Acts. A guy named Herod starts to take God's glory. God sends worms to eat him from the inside out. Pretty sobering. Don't touch God's glory. They're in a dangerous spot if they don't give glory to God. If they don't answer this question correctly. And Peter's saying, no, don't look at us. It's not us, it's the Lord. Verse 13. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. I'm amazed by the boldness. Last week's study, this week's study with Peter, Peter says, you guys killed Christ. Yeah, it was the leaders, but it was also you, the people. You were crying for Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. What did he say? Faith in the name of Jesus. What's the name of Jesus? The character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Peter knew Jesus. He knew that Jesus' heart was to touch people. And God does that through a variety of different ways. So he took steps in faith according to the nature of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the name of Jesus that God wants to touch the people that live on your street, that live in your apartment complex, your coworkers, your family members? I mean, do you really believe it? 
That's what this verse is saying. Faith in the name of Jesus. Confidence in the name of Jesus. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we go around blabbing it and grabbing it in the name of Jesus. Naming it and claiming it and just putting Jesus' name on anything that we want. But we can pray in the name of Jesus when it comes to the regards of people's salvation. And go, God, I know your heart. I know you want to save the people that live on my street. Bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. When we gather together to know that God's heart is to touch people. Has nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with whether we had a good week or a bad week. God wants to work. And sometimes as we go through our Christian life, we forget that, don't we? I forget that. I start thinking, Lord, do you really want to do a work on my street? You know, do you really want to do a work in my coworkers' lives? And we begin to get into a defeatist mentality instead of this heart of faith. And he says, it was faith in the name of Jesus that caused him to have perfect soundness in the presence of you all. In verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Ultimately, the crucifixion of Christ was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was the fulfillment of God's plan. This is a verse worth underlining. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We talk about repentance quite a bit. Hopefully it brings up a mental image in your mind. It's been said this way, God allows U-turns. This is exactly what repentance means. It means you're headed in one direction and it's a change of mind and it's a change of direction. It's conviction. Being convicted to the point where we say, I'm turning to Jesus Christ. So the message of salvation going to this group of people that killed Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. Here's an offer for them to be forgiven even though they played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness is for all. The blood of Jesus Christ is for all. There's an, always an opportunity to repent. Notice what happens. Repent, be converted, converted to Christ, that your sins may be blotted out, washed out by the blood of Jesus, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. That's the fresh, refreshing that we long for. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Maybe tonight as you come on this Wednesday night, you don't know Christ as your Savior. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Repent. Be converted to Christ. Believe in Christ. And the blood of Jesus is going to take away your sin. and Refreshment's going to come to your soul. A classic story, Pilgrim's Progress. Man is weighed down by his sin. Can't hardly walk. It's suffocating him comes to the cross and the refreshment that he feels when he knows the forgiveness of Christ. I know, brothers and sisters in Christ, you understand. You remember that day when you received Christ as your Savior. The best feeling in the world to know that your sins are forgiven. This is for every unbeliever, a promise that God gives. But we continue walking in this way as Christians. We turning away from our sin, not for salvation, but out of relationship with Jesus Christ. And do you long for refreshment in your life tonight? How's it gonna happen? Turning away from sin. Allowing God to blot it out. 
and then the refreshment to come. Sometimes, just like we don't expect God to work in the places that we live, we don't really expect that God would change our lives. We carry our struggles, we carry our sins, we live in that place of bondage, even though we're the child of God, and we can't ever see a breakthrough in our particular area of struggle. And we accept it. We kind of go, this is the way it is. I'm never going to get over it. This is the kind of person that I am. I've tried. I've put myself kind of in the Christian recovery group and it hasn't worked. I've taken myself through the Christian 12 steps and, well, I only get to step six and then I'm always back in the feces of my sin again. You know, the disgusting place of my sin. And God says, look, if you get to the place of repentance, if we would get to the place of saying, you know what, God, I'm really sorry about this. I'm really convicted about this and I'm turning away from it again tonight Lord I'm turning from this sin and would you forgive me guess what our gracious response of our father is oh sorry uh that's uh well let me see that's the thousandth and 99th time sorry I can't blot it out this time you know the blood of my son's really not enough for that I'm glad you're really sorry but no what's the promise he's gonna blot it out and then the time of refreshment comes from the presence of God because there's not anything that's keeping us from the presence of God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can put distance between us and God through our sin. It's not that God has forsaken us. We're still his child, but there's something missing in the presence of God, the nearness of God. And once the sin is dealt with, once the sin has been put aside, we can come and enter into that sweetness. And notice the order of this verse. The refreshment comes after the repentance. That blotting out, the forgiveness comes after repentance. The times of refreshing, they come in like waves after the repentance. It sounds like such a heavy word, right? Even just speaking it and having it come off my lips, it's like, repentance, you know, I almost feel like I should like grab my Bible and if I hit it a couple of times, then it, it really sounds good, right? But it's actually the most liberating word in the Bible. It's the freedom that comes when we break from that place of sin, when we get tired of living in that place of sin and saying, Lord, I desire you. I seek after you. I desire to be refreshed by you. May those times come in our hearts and our lives. And that he may send Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things. Just go ahead and say amen. We're going to back up really quick, and I'm going to read the restoration of all things, and then you just say it as loud as you would like to. Amen. Okay, so here I go. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Amen. That's exciting. You know, that's a whole lot more exciting than even if the Broncos would have won the Super Bowl. And I'm still wishing that they would have won the Super Bowl. Have you ever seen a team play so bad? I mean, it was embarrassing. A lot of times you forget the Super Bowl, but not when a team plays that bad. See, there's a restoration of all things. A time when God's going to make all things right. And for us to be able to look forward to that time and rejoice. Continuing on, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Now this is quoting Deuteronomy 18, a prophecy of Jesus. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up 
for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So a prophet that's similar to Moses. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed among the people. This is why Jesus is the greatest prophet. Because if people don't respond to him, they're utterly destroyed. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, and as many have spoken, have also foretold these things. The Old Testament prophecies of Christ are mind-blowing. In verse 25, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter is speaking to Jews, and he's quoting Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and he's explaining God's heart for them as a nation. Verse 26, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now let's go on into chapter four, because we see what takes place. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So catch the scene. Guy gets healed. He's jumping around everywhere, leaping, praising God, goes into the temple. There's a huge crowd around the man who's been healed. Peter takes the opportunity again to preach the gospel, but now comes who? The priest, the captain of the temple. Now that sounds scary the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Why are the Sadducees upset? Because they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in healing. What's on the top of their postcard is they don't believe in the resurrection. So here, Peter's preaching the resurrection, and the supernatural has just taken place. Verse 2, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This is a first in the early church. This is a first in the book of Acts. It's opposition. Everything up until this point has been awesome. Christ has ascended. The Spirit has come upon them. The gift of tongues was given. 3,000 people saved. And the first message that Peter gives, they're going over to each other's houses, enjoying fellowship and the simplicity in Christ Jesus. Now they're headed into the temple. Boom, this guy gets healed. There's a huge crowd gathering and hearing the gospel. Boom, they're thrown into prison. This should not catch us off guard. Jesus said if he's our master that we can expect that we're not greater than our master. Meaning, if this is the way they treated Jesus, we're going to be treated the same way. Peter told, or excuse me, Paul told Timothy, and he says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to happen in our lives and in our church. There will be times of opposition. But don't be discouraged. Look at verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed And the number of men came to be about 5,000. They got thrown in prison. God had his word, though. God had his way. 5,000 people got saved. Wouldn't you love to see 5,000 people get saved at one moment? Wouldn't you think that the suffering was worth it, that they went through to see 5,000 people come to know Christ as their Savior? As we'll find in the book of Acts, persecution's nothing to be afraid of because God does his greatest work in the midst of opposition. I've seen it in our church 
when there's opposition, when there's difficulty, that's when God's moving in the most tangible, powerful way in our church. When things are smooth and you look at things and you go, logistically, everything seems to be in place. Yeah, there's this season of peace and God's still moving, but it's not in the same dynamic and powerful way. Don't be afraid of the opposition. It's when God does his his greatest work. In verse five, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Just write in your Bible there, ungodly gang. This is the group that crucified Christ. And when they had sent them in the midst, they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? There's only one acceptable answer, and that's Jehovah. The name you've used of God in the Old Testament, the Father. But to say that the miracle happened in the name of Jesus Christ, that's blasphemy because you're claiming that Jesus is God, which is true, but they hated those words. They hated hearing the words that Jesus is God. This is the moment that Peter can shrink back. This is the moment that Peter could be PC and say, well, Jehovah did it, and he's right, but he's not going to back away from the truth. In verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that's the key, his response was filled with the Spirit, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel. Maybe he paused. Maybe he gave it a three count. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Fingers on chalkboard, folks. Right here, he's saying, in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, no, we don't believe in the resurrection. We're the Sadducees. That's why we're sad, you see. We don't believe in the resurrection. These were the most offensive words that Peter could speak, but he's filled with boldness and he's filled with the truth. And there's been many people throughout church history that have spoken with this kind of boldness. There was a preacher who traveled around who spoke a bold message against slavery. As he traveled on one particular day in the South, Andrew Jackson was there in the midst. And he was warned before he began to preach and saying, be careful, this might not be a good message to speak because of Andrew Jackson being here. And this is what he says, I quote, I understand President Andrew Jackson's here and I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. That was his opening remarks that he said. (laughs) Well, the audience was shocked. They wondered how the president would respond to this. But after the service, he told Cartwright, was the name of the pastor, Sir, if I had a, a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. <laughs> and he admired his, his courage. We all may have this defining moment where it's an opportunity to speak the gospel. For it's an opportunity to not be belligerent, to not be prideful, but also to not back down from the truth, to not back down from the name of Jesus. And what will we choose in those moments? Verse 11, 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Quoting Psalms 18, Jesus was that rejected cornerstone that becomes our foundation, becomes our salvation. Verse 12, nor is there, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Any questions there? It's not universalism. It's not all roads lead to God. There's only one name by which we're saved. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. They didn't have an answer for their boldness, even though it was so in their face. But they did understand these guys don't have a formal education. They lived much in a culture like we do, that in order to be heard on the topic of God, you're expected to go to school. And they had many schools where the scribes would train men to be teachers, The disciples didn't go to that school. They spent time with Jesus Christ and they perceived they were uneducated and they were untrained. But what they did realize is they'd been with Jesus. See, what we find in the lives of the apostles can be found in our life as well as we spend time with Jesus. This comes from time logged in with Christ, time in prayer, time in worship, time in his presence. That's why I'm so encouraged that you're here on a Wednesday night. You're logging time with the Lord. This is not something that you can fake. You might be able to fake it with some, but it doesn't last very long. This is something that authentic that comes simply as we spend time with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with education, but education isn't what qualifies us or equips us to have kingdom impact. You know what qualifies us and equips us for kingdom impact? It's time spent with Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have a doctorate in theology to be used by God. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But God uses ordinary, average, most importantly, available people that will spend time with him and be obedient to what the Spirit is moving in and through their life. What a great encouragement. Verse 13 is a lifelong goal for us. Wouldn't it be great on our tombstone if they simply put the words, they had been with Jesus. That would be a life well spent. No matter what else happened, that it was evident that we had spent time with Jesus. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They can't deny the supernatural when the supernatural is standing right in front of them. They have no words for it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. It's hard to have a position of not believing the supernatural when a miracle is right in front of your face like this. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. They're going to get a threatening. They're going to get a stern talking to so that they'll never speak the name of Christ again. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. So 
Who should I listen to, God or man? You tell me. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. There is a time where when the commands of men come in contradictions to the commands of God, where we must choose the commands of God. Now, we can't blur those lines. We can't make up the rules there. Some of you may say, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I don't think you can build a biblical case for not paying your taxes because Jesus kind of said, give unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give unto God the things that belong to God. You're kind of stuck there. You're probably going to have to pay, pay your taxes. But there's things like this where if the government were to come and say, you can't speak in the name of Jesus Christ, well, I've got to obey God. God gave me a command to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. These men, they honor God. They choose to follow the commands of God. Verse 21, so that when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. All of a sudden, the last 40 years of his life are looking a lot better, right? Maybe you're in your 40s and you're like, man, I've been in this condition for a long time. Is there hope for change? Absolutely. Just put right down there, hope for change in verse 22. Verse 23, and being let go, they went on their, their way, their, excuse me, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Imagine the conversation they're having with their friends. So when they heard it, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. If you're receiving threats because of your love for Jesus Christ, because you're speaking the words of Jesus Christ, respond in the same way and cry out to God who's created everything. By whom by the mouth of your servant David has said, quoting Psalms 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? That's true today, isn't it? The nations rage and people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers will gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. There is a real hatred towards Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What are they saying? The suffering of Christ was predetermined. So they understand if we suffer, it's predetermined. If we suffer, it's according to your sovereign plan. Verse 29, now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that in all ways we may get out of this situation. Is that what it says? Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word and by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't pray to get out of the circumstance. They gave the threats to God. Give the opposition, give the difficulty to God. He's a faithful defender and pray for boldness. Pray that we wouldn't shrink back from the opportunities that God gives. We need to pray for boldness. The disciples needed to pray for boldness because they knew their natural tendency would be to shrink back. This isn't fake it till you make it. This isn't trying to conjure it up. This is going before God and saying, God, I need your boldness because I know what my tendency would be in this situation. I love verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place 
where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. This is a prayer that God liked. Are we taking the difficulties of life to the Lord, allowing God to meet us in prayer? Being filled with the Holy Spirit was continual experience. And here, once again, they're filled with God's Spirit. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The bond was so strong that it became very natural to care for one another's needs. And notice, it wasn't the government's job to do it. (laughs) It wasn't the government saying, okay, now you need to share everything in common. This was generosity that was flowing out of a bond with brothers and sisters in Christ. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. And may God give us great power and great grace to bear witness of the resurrection of Christ. And we end with these verses. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as they had need. And Joses, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Great generosity flowed out of tremendous love. They'd fallen in love with Christ. They're caring for one another and it just began to flow out of their hearts from this place. Simple conclusion tonight. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. These two chapters would not be here if Peter and John didn't follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead us. And then give the opposition to the Lord in prayer. Hand it over to him. And pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be bold in the midst of that opposition. Do you expect the Spirit of God to lead you and move in your life? I feel as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's God's heart for more and more people to come into the kingdom. And he's looking for a Peter. He's looking for a John. He's looking for someone who's got the lifestyle of prayer, that hears his voice, that senses the leading of the Holy Spirit, and walks out in faith, and then watches the Lord work and move. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's wanting to move in people's lives. Amen? Amen. So let's stand and pray together.